Coming up on Philosophy Talk. We scientists have now located a gene which we scientists believe makes you want to punch people in the head when they take the scientific process and subject it to their pathological literal-mindedness. Science is supposed to discover objective truths. But some scientists claim a monopoly on the discovery of truth. Isn't that arrogant? Championing science doesn't have to mean rejecting other forms of knowledge. Humans discovered or invented the process of science. Humans invented philosophy. So keep that in mind that when you go to seek an absolute truth, you're a human seeking the truth, so there's going to be limits. How do we make a science that's more intellectually humble? Our guest is Massimo Pilucci, editor of Science Unlimited, The Challenges of Scientism. The science overreach. I am a scientist, not a philosopher. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Are there questions that science is powerless to answer? Or is science the measure of all things? Science may tell us what is, but can it tell us what ought to be? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. And today we're asking, does science overreach? It's the sixth and final episode in our series on intellectual humility. Does science overreach? You bet it does. Don't you agree, Ken? (laughs) No. I mean, Josh, without science, we'd be back on the savannah hunting with stone axes or something. Okay, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not knocking science. I'm just saying it it needs to stay in its lane. (laughs) Stay in its lane? Josh, science's lane is everywhere. I mean, it's the measure of all things. Of what is, that it is, and what is not, that it is not. Uh, Who are you today, a Protagoras? I mean, look, science is not the measure of beauty or or, or significance or or right and wrong. Whoa, 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 slow down, Josh. Do you take that list of, I don't know, call them untouchables, to be objective or merely subjective? Why does that matter? Well, because if your list of untouchables is objective, then science gets the last word, I'm afraid. I mean, science and science alone discovers and explains the objective features of the world, right? Yeah, I mean, you agree with that. The objective features of the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, start by thinking about, like, quarks and gluons. They're out there. And then all the less fundamental things, like rocks and cells and animals, that are, you know, built out of these fundamental things. Okay, that's a pretty picture. But what's it got to do with beauty? Well, Josh, because if beauty is real, then it better fit into that picture somewhere. And if science discovers that beauty isn't part of the picture, uh, then I'm afraid that beauty's just not real. I mean, beauty would have to go the way of all the dead dogmas, superstitions, and fantasies that science has progressively forced us to abandon. That's what. That's why that matters. Oh my God, you sound like a total reductionist. You sound like you make that sound like that's a bad thing. Of course, I'm a reductionist. What's wrong with being a reductionist? Well, look. Even if it turned out that beauty isn't included in that that grand list of objective features of the world that you're talking about, all that's going to show is that beauty is an ineffable property of human experience beyond the reach of science. Oh, I know, like figments of our imagination, right? Not like figments of our imagination. No, 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 no. Look, even if beauty isn't out there somewhere, it's still real. 
because, you know, you and I, we're real. And our, our subjects of experiences, they're real, too. Well, Josh, I don't know. That depends on what you mean by real. Oh, spoken like a true philosopher. <laughs> oh, I wear that as a badge of honor, too. Well, then, Mr. Philosopher, let me just say this to you. Beauty got its grip on the human mind long before we became so obsessed with science. And, and that grip on our imaginations, that grip on us, that's going to last, even if one day we relinquish science. Oh, my God, that would be a tragic outcome, John. Look, fair enough. I'm, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying, Ken, there's more in heaven and earth than is dreamed of in your science textbooks. Oh, no, you're speaking like a true literary type. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> And at, look, as a proud literary type, I'm going to insist on something. I'm going to insist. Sci science is fantastic, but it's never going to replace literature. Literature does things that science cannot hope to accomplish. Oh, come on. Like what? Well, science explains the world, and that's very important. But literature, literature also gets to narrate the world. Narrate the world? What's the big difference? Well, explanations about causes and effects, but narration is also about experience uh, okay, and meaning look, and value. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get you, Josh. That, that's an important distinction. But I'm, I'm still... Look, I'm going to ask you, can't there be a science of meaning-making, value-having, and experience? Well, maybe. No, not maybe, Josh, not maybe. There has to be a science of it. I mean, because look, after all, we human beings... I hate to tell you this, Josh. We're part of nature, too. And we, too, are made of matter and energy. We're not made of spook stuff, mysterious spook stuff. You're starting to sound a little scientistic. Scientistic? Yeah, like you think absolutely everything has to bow to science, like like it's the almighty ruler. You, you know you, you know the facts of everything and the value of nothing. <laughs> look, look, Josh, I don't mean to be scientistic, whatever that is. I mean <laughs> to be scientific. And I, I think there's a big difference between scientistic and scientific. I, I totally agree. I, I'm just saying that's a bit of a fine needle to thread. If you're going to thread that needle between science and scientism, you better start by acknowledging that science has limits. Oh, of course it has its limits. I grant you that. If we don't respect the limits of science, we'll end up doing bad science, pseudoscience. Exactly, and there's plenty of that out there. And it's even worse than that. Even the best science can never answer all the pressing questions that human beings find so important. And that's precisely why we sent our roving philosophical reporter Liza Veal to look at gender through the eyes of science, bad science, and non-science. She files this report. There's a long tradition of feminist critique of science. Various disciplines have tried to objectively describe gender to find out, is gender more than just a cultural construct? Is it based in biological difference? That's an effort that kind of failed. Helen Longino with Stanford University says it's hard to neutralize our ideas about gender, which is necessary to make objective observations. In a lot of studies, there were already assumptions built into uh, the research itself, whether about how to interpret the evidence or assumptions about uh, how to describe the data. There's this example about how some mainly male anthropologists assumed that men changed the course of human evolution. But that turned out to be not quite right. So they figured out that humans adapted because of the development of stone tools. Our teeth became smaller, our posture more upright, because tools made life easier. So the assumption was stone tools were created by men for hunting. So men changed the course of human evolution. But a decade later, women anthropologists pointed out that those tools were just as likely used for digging, crushing seeds, softening roots. In other words, female activities. And so that showed 
the ways in which the man the hunter model was really dependent on these assumptions about male activity and female inactivity. Critiquing methodology is part of science. Scientists are always self-critiquing. But Longino's saying some things are so subjective that it's hard to approach them objectively. There is no perfect methodology. Our concepts of gender kind of affect the way we understand the rest of the world. So gender isn't just an effect. Gender also produces ways in which we understand the world, or at least they reinforce each other. So when trying to study things like gender, Longinot knows the data will be messy. There's no way to control for factors like history and culture in human behavior. There's no accounting for what could be the limitless potential of the future. Longinot says science can't predict how humans are going to change their kind of social and physical environments beyond making kind of very broad general claims that are kind of empty. Gender is always adapting as the world changes, but right now it seems like the conversation is changing rapidly. Younger generations are dispensing with the female-male binary system faster than many could have imagined. And people are looking for ways to make sense of this outside of science. It isn't that you don't like boys. It's that you only like boys you want to be. This is the poet Andrea Gibson and some of their poem, Your Life. Mary Levine calls you a dyke and you don't have the language to tell her she's wrong and right. So you just show up to her house, promising to paint her fingernails red with what will gush from her busted face if she ever says it again. The people challenging the binary gender system see gender as something expansive and fluid. Another poet, Leslie Feinberg, says, gender is the poetry each of us makes with the language we've been given. And that's what this poem by Andrea Gibson is about. You don't yet know the boys are building their confidence on stolen land, but you do worry the girls might be occupied with things you will never understand, won't ever, ever be good at. Gibson says poetry, specifically queer poetry, helped them know how to be. Choosing your life and how that made you into someone who now often finds it easy to explain your gender by saying you are happiest on the road when you're not here or there, but in between the yellow line running down the center of it all like a sunbeam. Your name is not a song you will sing under your breath. I promise your pronouns haven't even been invented yet. You could say poetry, like science, is a way of knowing. But it's subjective, not objective. Instead of giving us data, it conveys experience. And ultimately, for every person, that's what gender is. Subjective experience. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Liza Beal. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.